Sunday. If you have your Bibles, would you open up to Mark chapter 14? It is called Palm Sunday or Passion Sunday because it it recognizes the beginning of Jesus' week of passion where he, he entered into Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, and crowds waved palm branches. They declared Hosanna. We said those words earlier. And as we, we break into this Easter season, we, we slow down to reflect on Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. And we're going to be looking at Mark's gospel. And Mark helps us to reflect on this week of his suffering. And reflection is good. To slow down and reflect is good. Sometimes just a reflection when we actually look ourselves in the mirror is helpful because we, we, see, we see ourselves as we, as we really are. There was an ancient practice of reflection on mortality it's communicated and captured in this Latin phrase called momenta, memento mori, translated roughly, remember death, or remember that you're going to have to die. In considering mortality, we, we see the transient nature of this, this world, what is meaningful, maybe what is vain. You, you find this approach found in philosophy and art. Now, artists would use symbolic reminders like, including a skull in the painting where the, the viewer will be reminded of mortality and maybe surround that with an hourglass or flowers, knowing that those are fleeting, they're passing. In Christian tradition, it helps us emphasize that death is imminent, but there's value to life and death doesn't have the last word. There is a certainty of hope in the afterlife. And so you would visit cemeteries and you may see this phrase written on tombstones. So death brings awareness. It, it can bring focus. It can bring conviction. It can actually bring action. It help us keep, helps us keep things in perspective, the things that are maybe finite. And it keeps the things that are eternal important. And this reflection can do something else. It can illuminate the things that are most valuable in our our life, the things that are most beautiful, maybe the, the people or the things that have our hearts, the things that we most love can be exposed. And we see in Jesus' week of passion, as death nears, as his cross gets closer and closer, what really is in the people's hearts that are around him begins to bubble up to the surface. They begin to be exposed. And so embedded in this this chapter, Mark 14, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. We, we see this imagery, this anticipation of death, and it reveals something to these characters. It, it exposes very different responses, and sh- some of them should provoke disgust. And one of them is designed to fill us with awe and worship and actually provoke love. So let's read our text, and then we're going to, to pray this morning. Beginning at verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment 
of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let's pray. Lord, as we slow down to reflect on this holy week, your life, your suffering, your death, and your resurrection... Lord, as we, we slow down and, and we consider what you've done, Lord, I, I ask that you would incline our heart, our, our heart to, to know deeply, freshly, what that means, what you've done. Lord, let, let this year just not be a, another rote Easter holiday week, but there would be something you do in us by your Spirit so that we may see you, we may know you, we may love you, follow you, obey you, and worship you more deeply, Lord. So come, Spirit, would you speak to our hearts today? We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Now we're dropping down into Mark's gospel here in chapter 14, and what, what Mark has been doing so far, he's been exploring who Jesus is, his identity. He's been showing the reader that he is the sovereign, suffering son of God, and he has a mission to seek and save the lost. And he's also communicating what that means to be a disciple of Jesus, what it means to suffer and to serve like him. And what's not just unique to Mark, but to all the Gospels, is that they devote about one-third of their gospel to this final week of Jesus, emphasizing the passion and the suffering of Jesus Christ, his way to the cross and his resurrection. They're, they're illuminating something by emphasizing so much for us in the gospels. And when we approach the gospels, we remember that they're, the author is seeking to communicate something historically. He, he's wanting to communicate history of what happened but Mark is doing something else. He, he's telling a story. He's offering truth in how he communicates, the way he includes facts, the details, or what he may leave out. And so Mark 14, verses 1 through 11, he's setting up a story of this radical devotion to Jesus pinned between two smaller summaries 
of those who are seeking Jesus's death or betrayal. Verses one through two and 10 through 11. Commentators would call this the Mark, a Markin sandwich. Several times we see this in the book of Mark where there are two stories in the front and the back end and embedded in the story is a third story in the middle with a deeper lesson and meaning being communicated. And we see that as we look in the reality of Jesus' life and his death in this gospel, both the value of who he is and what he has done produces some very different devotions, some very different responses to the characters. Each of these characters are seeking something and one we should desire to be like. And we're, so we're going to look at these in three, three parts. The first one is verses one through two, the leaders. We were just made aware that just in a couple days is going to be Passover, which is concluding the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so Sabbath is coming this week on that Friday. And the Jews, this is a, a pilgrimage feast, are flocking into the city of Jerusalem for Passover. It would, be, it would be packed. They were assembling for this annual celebration where they would remember their deliverance from Egypt and slavery. And it was crowded. And they were, the, it was busy. The Roman leaders were on alert and trying to prepare and keep and manage the city. And we see this, these leaders now, these chief priests and the scribes, huddled up in a little meeting, a little board meeting, plotting to arrest Jesus. They know they can't make a scene, however. There's people in the city that love Jesus, that are following Jesus. And for a long time now, they've been moving towards this trajectory to get rid of Christ. And so here they are, scheming, seeking, it says, seeking, planning this deceptive, treacherous way to not only arrest him, but we see kill him. But they don't want an uproar, so they're doing it secretly, biding their time. And then the story sort of pulls out and takes this different tone. We find Jesus now in this town of Bethany. This would have been a small town two miles or so outside of the city. And Jesus is having dinner at this house of a man named Simon. Simon called the leper. Now, it is most likely he's referred to as the lepers because he was leprous and he was healed. If he was still leprous, he would be unclean. Therefore, we would not be having a dinner party at Simon's house. So it begs the question, would, would this be a man that maybe Jesus possibly healed and now has him over for dinner? So we have our hosts and then we have our guests. Strangely, though, they're unnamed we know in Matthew, in John's gospel, it says that the disciples were present, yet Mark leaves them sort of nameless, these nameless guests. So, so imagine here's the moment, maybe they've wrapped up dinner, they're, they're reclining at table, they've finished their meal, they're relaxing, maybe it's coffee and dessert time. And I'll envision the, the sort of the masculine dominating the room. There would not be a bunch of ladies hanging around the table eating in this setting. Jewish women would not be attending a meal like this unless they were possibly serving food. So then here's when the moment gets awkward. A woman breaks in. An unnamed woman moves into the dinner area. 
And we know from John's account, this is possibly Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. But for here, Mark leaves her anonymous. She moves towards Jesus carrying something. Something folks would maybe would recognize, they would see. This is an alabaster bottle, smaller bottle, maybe like 12 ounces. would have a long neck and it was sealed and it's full of a perfume, a, a fragrant ointment of pure nard. It's, a, it's an oil made from the root of a plant found mainly in India and is very costly. They would use this for burials at times to mask the smell of decomposition and she carries it in. I can imagine people going, what is she doing with that bottle? The disciples probably at this point are used to Jesus doing very awkward, strange things when he's around. But is she going to give this to Jesus as a present? Is this to honor him in some way? They're bracing for the weird. But what she does is sort of shock and awe. She, she breaks the neck off this bottle. And she pours it all over Jesus' head. Now, this, this bottle was not made to spritz or like recap. It's once you break that neck off, you must use all of it. And she does not waste a drop. She pours it upon Jesus. And at this point, the, the aroma would have just flooded this room. Now, it was understandable why this would have been a bit of shock and awe. This was a costly bottle. We see in verse Five, it was worth roughly 300 denarii. This is what be equivalent about one year's worth of wages. At times, a bottle like this would be maybe an heirloom, or maybe this was part of her dowry. We don't know, but maybe just to get a number in our head, let's say this is somewhere between 30000 and $50,000. She comes in with this bottle and pours it all over Jesus. Now, I love my wife. We're going to be celebrating 20 years this year. And I like to bless her with gifts. And perfume is a gift I have purchased over the years. Um, and I deeply love my wife. But I tell you, there's a little bit of hesitancy when I've got that $50 or whatever it might be that I must give the cashier for a bottle of perfume as much as I love my wife. And she can use that thing all year long. This was used once, and this was costly. And she poured it over Jesus. There were some of them in the room that were indignant about this. This word is so strong. They, they, were, they were angered. It means that they expressed violent displeasure. And he was said, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold and given to the poor, and they scolded her. Now, during the Passover, it was customary to give money to the poor during the celebration. So it's likely this, this was fresh in their mind. Matthew's gospel says it was the, the disciples that reacted, while John points the finger at Judas, who said this. And when scripture tells us that Judas, he didn't say this because he cared for the poor, but he was a thief and was in charge of the money bag and would help himself to it. But Mark 
broadens it, and he says, they scolded her. Now, at first glance, this seems like a noble statement, right? Why wouldn't you use all of this money to do so much good? I mean, think of all the ministry that could be done with all of, this, all of these resources. It's like you're just throwing this away. Could it be that their religious duty and trying to just do the ministry work, it blocked them from seeing the beauty of Jesus right before them? Jesus turns to the woman's defense, almost in a sense of rebuke, shaming of these individuals. Leave her alone, for she has done a beautiful thing to me. You will always have the poor, whatever you want, and you will be able to do good to them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Notice that word there. She has done a beautiful. Far from being wasteful, this was beautiful. This was not foolish. This was glorious. Now, Jesus was not being indifferent to the poor. If you read the scriptures, we know we are, to, we are charged to be mindful and serve the poor. Jesus came near to the poor. However, the good news, the priority of the good news of who Jesus is and why he came is what poor and rich most need. In this moment, Jesus is present. Christ is primary. He's about to be gone. And his unmatched worth and value, this woman was giving all that she could to communicate that to him. What she, he meant to her. And it was beautiful. Far from being ignorant. She, she knew something about Jesus. She foresaw something. There was a sensitivity and awareness about who the Savior was and what his suffering was going to look like. He had already, Jesus had repeatedly told his disciples three times already, I'm going to suffer and to die. And here it seems like they are clueless to what is going on. And she is discerning. Is Jesus moving towards something like Gethsemane, Golgotha, she probably didn't fully know all that was ahead, but Jesus clearly tells us she was preparing his body for burial, for his death, for his crucifixion. What a contrast. The religious leaders were using their power and wealth to dishonor Jesus in murder, and the woman is using her silent humility and her possessions to honor Jesus in his death and loving adoration. And Jesus says, this is just astounding. Nowhere else in scripture is something like this said. Truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. This is stunning. Her passionate, beautiful, costly act was one Jesus would say would fit into holy scripture for every disciple from then on till now in all of history and all of the world to be read about in connection to his gospel. Her worship was not wasted. Her act 
was not wasted. And what Jesus was not, was not only doing foreshadowing his death, he was foreshadowing the completion of his work, his resurrection in this statement. He was saying, I will die and I will rise and I'm gonna fulfill my purpose as savior and Messiah. And this message is gonna go into the whole world. Here we are experiencing prophetic fulfillment of what Jesus said. Worshiping Jesus requires costly love. At times, even when the crowd around is not following that, she stands out. I mean, think about the temptations and hesitations she could have succumbed to before this act. Fear of man. What are those disciples going to think? I mean, those are the important people. And of course, all these men around the table. Is my worship going to look too radical? Who's going to maybe make fun of me? Will my zeal for Jesus be mistaken as a bit over the top? Or selfishness? This, this perfume has extreme value. I should keep it to myself. I might need it one day. Prolonging or a putting off. What if she prolonged this radical act of worship to another day? Maybe just a week. I'll love Jesus more desperately, more passionately someday in the future. No. She didn't. She didn't hesitate. She didn't let her love for the Savior be dictated by other people around her. She selflessly gave out of her riches, all that she could. And Jesus saw that. She knew it. or He knew it. He knows our hearts when we move towards him in worship, when we are withholding or when we are gladly giving what we have. The point isn't not that we have to give a $30,000 financial gift or some inheritance for it to count. It's a measurement of where our heart is, our motive. It could be the weary day when you are exhausted and you feel like you are spent and yet you lean into that opportunity to love and serve someone else. It's you, mom, when you're caring for that sick, needy child, when you are empty. Your heart is broken in dependence and you move towards him and say, Jesus, I trust you. I pour out my will, my, my time, my resources, my energy because I love you and this is all I have. I think there's a challenge for us as Christians to dis, have eyes to discern the worship in, li, in the lives of other people that don't always look like other individuals. It's not always apples to apples. Your sacrifice versus another. Remember, Jesus celebrates the widow's might just a couple chapters prior the, the two mere pennies, the smallest increment valued coin, and Jesus honors and celebrates that woman's sacrifice. And you almost hear the exact same statement. She gave all that she had. The measure of her gift was weighed by the measure of her heartfelt loving sacrifice of worship. I want to encourage you, Cross of Grace. I get to observe the leaning in, the sacrifice, the giving of your heart in loving worship to Jesus in so many ways. 
no act or endurance in suffering given to God in obedience as disciples is simply measured by material value. It is seen through your heart. And when done in faith, when done in faith, no gift of worship is wasted. Jesus is honored. God sees, my friends. He's honored. He's glorified. Now notice how Mark tells our story. He arranges these to communicate something. So we've seen the well-known powerful leaders scurrying around, working their ugly, deceptive scheme. We've seen the unnamed woman who does something extravagant and beautiful. And now we come to one of the elite 12, Judas. He does something ugly. What does he do? Well, he goes to the religious leaders, possibly kind of breaks into their little board meeting that they're still having. Knowing that they're seeking to arrest and kill Jesus, he wants to get in on maybe helping this. And he seeks them in order to betray Jesus. They were glad. And they were glad to give him some money for this. And once again, money comes into our narrative. And this time it's a measly sum. 30 silver coins. Pales. Pales in comparison to what this woman just did. What a contrast. The unnamed woman lavishing all she had on Jesus because of her love. And Judas, because of his love for money, seeking to betray the Savior. Loading his pockets. One commentator said this. The bracketing of the devotion of the woman who remains an unnamed outsider by the betrayal plot of an intimate insider creates an acid contrast between faith and treachery. Faith and love, betrayal and treachery. Jesus was betrayed by Judas. What, what is betrayal? Well, it's an act of disloyalty, a hurt or an endangering of what should be your friend or a group that you would want to be faithful to. Now, betrayal, I would say, probably doesn't happen often just with a flip of a switch. Betrayal can begin by maybe lost affections or lost commitments. Maybe consider treason and war. An officer loses a sense of gratitude or love, fidelity to a nation. He no longer believes in what he once did or what the nation stands for. His loyalty wanes a little here, a little there. Turns into bitterness and hate and selfish gain. Now this could happen for a good reason, right? A Dietrich Bonhoeffer who sought the assassination of Hitler, but this is unlike that. This is, this is Jesus. This is the Holy Savior, the perfect Son of God. I mean, it begs the question, did Judas ever have any kind of form of trust or faith? Don't know specifically, but we know that he gave himself to Satan's temptations, that he was enslaved to greed, that he likely joined for the wrong reasons. He was disillusioned because his attachment to Jesus didn't quite pan out like he had thought it would. Maybe this was the last draw here. Jesus wasting this money and he was done. But we ultimately see that Judas was used in God's sovereign plan. What was meant for evil, the Lord used for his glory and his saving rescue mission. 
What's something we can take away from this? What? I think it could be a warning to disciples to remember that proximity does not equal worship. One thing Judas had, he had proximity, his position, but his closeness in the inner circle did not guarantee passionate love for Jesus. We even see the disciples, they're kind of like desirous and passionate about noble things, but they seem to be neglecting the very love for the Savior that we're seeing, we're seeing here should be present. Being present on a Sunday worship gathering does not equal heartfelt affections. Proximity in a living room with your children does not equal investment or warmth. Proximity in your D group does not automatically equal fruitfulness or fellowship. Being a member of a church does not guarantee love for the Savior. So this is a sobering check for us to evaluate our coldness, maybe a familiarity. What unfolds through the rest of chapter 14, it's a very long chapter, is this sort of spiraling out of control, the traitor present at another meal, the garden where the disciples can't stay awake and pray with Jesus. Jesus is arrested and the disciples run away and then Peter, who swore he would not deny him, denies Jesus three times. We must see Jesus. And in that, there's a warning, but I think there's an invitation. I think it's found in the woman's example. What did she do that was so worthy to be seen and told of forever? Forever spoken in reference to his gospel. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed. I believe it's because she saw and responded in worship to the beauty and glory of Jesus and what would be his cross for her. I think the reason was that she was going to be honored because she got it. She saw the worth of Christ. Over the clueless disciples, she saw his beauty and her beautiful act of devotion, her extravagant love was connected to the extravagant love he was about to express in his death. Here, the unnamed woman at the center sees pure nard, pure devotion, pure worship, pure love for the Savior. She wasn't there because of what she could get from Jesus. She was there because of who Jesus was. And it seems that she saw that the gospel message was inextricably linked to the sacrificial suffering that Jesus would pour out in his death. And in response, costly sacrifice by something being broken out, broken and poured out in love. Jesus' journey was going in the same direction. Costly sacrifice by being broken and poured out for love. Our costly love towards him is in response of seeing his cost of sacrifice being poured out for us. And could it be that Mark cloaks the names of these characters, the the confused disciples, the the unnamed woman, maybe so we could more easily find ourselves in this story, an an invitation, an invitation for all of us to come, wherever you're at, come and see Jesus afresh. Come and love Jesus afresh. 
And as we near Good Friday and Easter, would it be, and this is my prayer from my own heart and us, that we would not be left unmoved, unaffected. The amazing in grace can oftentimes drift. So do you, do you sense a coldness, maybe an insensitivity to the beauty and the marvelous love of Jesus today? Are you clouded by duty and spiritual obligations that you miss the Savior right before you? who wishes you to pour out your heart and your affections upon him. Maybe you're busy seeking power or money or personal glory on this earth and your heart is distracted and hindered from seeing the first love. We have an invitation here. We have an invitation and no better way to help us see that invitation than maybe some words from Charles Spurgeon to encourage us to encourage us to come near Christ, specifically his cross, to restore that love. He says this, Are you content to follow Jesus from a distance? Oh, let me affectionately warn you, for it is a grievous thing when we can live contentedly without the present enjoyment of the Savior's face. Remember where you first received salvation. Go at once to the cross. There and there only can you get your spirit aroused, no matter how hard how insensible, how dead you may have become. Let's go again in all the rags and poverty and defilement of our natural condition. Let's clasp that cross. Let's look into those languid eyes. Let's bathe in that fountain filled with blood. This will bring us back to our first love. This will restore the simplicity of our faith and the tenderness of of our heart. The more we dwell where the cries of Calvary can be heard, the more noble our lives become. Nothing puts life into men like a dying Savior. What can increase our affections, tenderize our hearts, restore our love? It's seeing the most beautiful one, Jesus, the most beautiful thing done in history for you and for me, and that was his work on the cross. We love because he first loved us. And that is displayed in his broken body that was poured out on the cross to take our sins upon himself and in exchange give us his righteous life. And he lavished this upon us. Ephesians 1 tells us he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Do you see the Savior today? His body broken, poured out. His grace lavished upon you. At the end of Mark's gospel, chapter 16, we see a couple women going to the tomb after Jesus' death. Said they had spices. They were going to anoint Jesus' body to complete his burial. But you know what? They They didn't get to do that. There wasn't a need for them to do that. They were stopped because he was not in the tomb. He had already been anointed. 
He had already been buried and he died and he rose again and he is alive. And they were told these women were commissioned and sent off to go tell who? The disciples. I love that. The good news. This little aside here, precious sisters, you have a vital, valuable role in proclaiming the good news and gospel of Jesus Christ. God wants to use you to minister his glory and his grace to others. In Mark 14, Jesus is defending this woman in the midst of a bunch of men. Godly men defend women. Christianity is not anti-woman. Jesus has a high view of women. Mark's gospel, you read that. It's clearly through this. Men can be jerks. Disciples at times need to be rebuked. But godly leadership, godly leadership looks like leading people into extravagant love of Jesus. So memento mori. We remember that we will die. But we don't do that in absence of remembering that our Savior, our beautiful Savior's body was broken and poured out so that we may live. And we then respond in extravagant love and affection because of what he's done. And because of Jesus, what he's done, Mark 14, I think, invites all sorts of people. Disciples who are slow at getting things. Even the ones who are sitting around in person, flesh and blood, with the Savior invites those folks to love Jesus. Those who feel unworthy, maybe like an unnamed nobody who can't get near Jesus. Those who are distracted and off course. Those whose loves are misplaced and all over. It's a call to seek him. It's a call to see his worth. It's a call to to lavish your love upon him. Let's reflect on that this Easter. Let's see Jesus this Easter and let's respond in love, loving him with all we have. Let's pray. Lord, it doesn't take much for us to read an account like Mark 14 and find ourselves in there and, and maybe become more aware of what we're not doing or what we haven't done or what we're missing. And I think that's not the point. It's the point that we, we see Jesus. We see you, Jesus. We see you afresh and we see who you are and what you've done. And you invite us to behold you and to see the extravagant love that you displayed on your cross in your death for us so that we may experience that love. So Lord, would you allow us, cross of grace, to know that love more deeply today? Not because of what we've done, not because of what we haven't done. Maybe at times feeling unworthy, the, the nobody, the unable to get close. Lord, we, we think that you invite us. You invite us there. You invite us in our misappropriated loves, our misplaced loves. We've been off course, and you, and you, you call us to see you respond in fresh trust. So would you fill us with your love today? Would you fill us and increase our love for you today by your spirit? You are worthy. You are so worthy, Lord. Amen.